0: On April 16th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. sat confined in a city jail in Alabama where he wrote his famous letter, letter from a Birmingham jail. Uh, jail. It, it's well worth your, uh, an hour to read through uh, his letter. It's, it's a letter written to clergymen. And he's writing to these clergymen because uh, these particular clergymen had called Dr. King's activities in leading the civil rights movement as unwise and untimely. And so he, he was labeled an extremist and he wrote a letter to them to kind of explain where he was coming from. Here's a little bit that he said in that letter. He said, Though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, I continued to think about the matter. I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. And John Bunyan. I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln. This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So Dr. King goes on to say, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension Of justice. Though these words were written nearly 58 years ago this April, they're still just as relevant for our time today. And that final question must be answered in every single generation. What kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Dr. King's work in the civil rights movement of the 1960s was specifically targeting matters of racial injustice. But we could expand that question to other matters of justice as well that are just as worthy of our consideration. How do we as the people of God engage in the conversation and work to bring justice to the injustices of racism and abortion And poverty and the most vulnerable, how do we talk about justice from a biblical world view? That's the goal of our new sermon series called, And Justice for All. You see, the Bible is not silent on matters of social justice. In fact, it has a lot to say about it. Nearly on every single page of the Bible, there's something about justice. But many times, we look to CNN... We look to Fox News, we look to Twitter, Instagram, the NFL, the NBA, political pundits, Wall Street, corporate executives, Hollywood, and the like, without ever considering what the Bible has to say about justice. There's a conversation, perhaps you've heard it, going on in our culture about matters of justice. It happens uh, in, in, in the culture, it's happening in churches, but it's happening completely void of the word of God. When he's actually the one who defines, declares, and demands justice. Now let's not pretend this whole conversation is a very hard conversation. It's a divisive conversation. It's one that can often get heated and out of control. And yet, it's an important conversation because justice involves real people who experience real injustice. And so as we begin this sermon series, I want to give us a few guidelines of how we're going to engage in this conversation. First, we will extend charity in conversation. We hope, your pastors hope, we've been praying that this series would stir up conversation. But our hope is that it would stir up conversation, not division. So what that means is we're going to listen before we speak, we should listen and ask questions. We will assume the best of people and not the worst of people. If we're having a conversation and it's hard, we're going to take a break. And that's okay. We'll abstain from conversation if we feel like we can't handle it in a way that maintains conversation and relationship. We've got a booklet at the back resource table. It's called How Can I Love Church Members With Different politics it is a great read please get do yourself a favor pick up a copy and read it it's incredibly short but it's also incredibly helpful as we try to maintain charity and conversation that's the first thing second we can't say everything about everything Entire books are written on some of the topics that we'll have one week to talk about. And so we simply won't be able to say everything that could be said about every single topic. That burden no speaker should bear. But what our goal is to do is to give you a framework from the Bible for thinking through each topic. Number three, there is a difference between the truth of a matter and the application of a matter. Here's what I mean. Our goal is to think about these topics from a biblical worldview. So whatever the topic is, be it racism, abortion, poverty, and the vulnerable, we're going to look at what does the Bible say about each one of those topics. But remember this, the Bible was not written in this last century It doesn't give us detailed policies about how these issues get worked out in 21st century America. It doesn't give us a detailed plan of how we extend justice to our neighbors in the everyday stuff of life. It gives us principles. It gives us guidelines. And then we have to do the hard work of application, of thinking, okay, so how do I, in my time period, where I live, with my neighbors, how do I extend what the Bible says I need to extend? We want to give a framework and a grid about thinking through these topics. And then we've got to do the hard work of prayerfully considering how those topics get worked out in application and policies, Number four, we will need prayerful discernment on how to respond. So there is no, make make, make no mistake about it, there is a response required, but we need to be prayerful and thoughtful about how we respond. And it can be very easy as we go throughout this series, as we're talking about some of these heavy topics, to get overwhelmed as you're considering what your response might be. And how you are to be uh, involved in extending justice in these various topics. But I want us to feel the freedom to take a deep breath. We are not going to solve all the social ills of the world in this six-week sermon series. We're just not. Big problems are not solved by erratic, frenzied, haste decisions. That's not how any problem is solved. We can remember and take comfort in that God is sovereign he is in control so what that means is as we think through these topics we can be prayerful and thoughtful about how to respond that doesn't mean we stay prayerful and thoughtful forever there is a time for action but it does mean we can give ourselves the gift of thinking thoughtfully and prayerfully and finally number five this is a big one we are not advocating for any political party Our church is not Republican. Our church is not Democratic. It is not Libertarian. It is not Independent. You know why? Because we are the church of Christ Jesus. He is our king. He is our leader. And so we're not beholden to, hostage to, any political party. Our platform is not found in in Republicanism or Democraticism. It's found in the Bible. And hear me. There is not a single political party that fully embodies the ethics of Jesus. There's not, you can't find one. That's why it's normal for Christians who are following the scriptures to feel like political orphans. But it's okay to be a political orphan, you know why? Because we are not orphans. We are adopted and loved by the God of the universe. So here's what that means. For some in this room who might lean left, I'm just warning, I'm telling you, I am going to say things, Pastor Kevin is going to say things that might make you feel uncomfortable. And for those who lean right, we are going to say things in our sermon series that might make you feel uncomfortable. We will say things that will be in contradiction to political parties and platforms. But what I'm asking you to consider is this. Not whether or not we align with your preferred political party, but do we align with God and his word? That is all I care about. That is all I'm interested in. And that should be all that you care about as well. Does what I say come from the Bible? Not what, how it aligns with any political party. Do we align with God and his word? And if we do, friends, hear me. God's word always overrides political parties his word is eternal his word is what matters okay with that groundwork laid what are we doing today today's sermon you thought that was a sermon it wasn't that was just the guidelines of how we're going to engage today my job today is to lay a foundation for justice so i'm trying to answer the question what is justice what is justice does the bible talk about it Does the Bible give us a framework for thinking through matters of justice? And as you might suspect, the Bible has a lot to say about uh, matters of justice, how we respond, giving us a good framework. And so we're going to ask three questions this morning. First, where does justice come from? And what we're going to see is that justice is rooted in the character and heart of God. I'm going to try to make the argument that justice, this idea of justice, is not self-evident to humanity. But flows from God to humanity because we're made in his image. Second, we're gonna ask what is justice? This is where I'm gonna put on my nerd glasses show you that I learned a little bit of Hebrew, and tell you about these words that the Bible uses, justice and righteousness. And we're going to look at a lot of passages of scripture. I told Marie that I owed her a hot chocolate because there's a ton of slides today, more slides than we've ever had before. But it's important that we look at the biblical words and ask, what do those words actually mean? If we're going to know what it means to do justice or be just, we want to know what the Bible says. And finally, third question is, what is my responsibility for justice? The Bible is emphatically clear that justice is required for all believers. No one is exempt from pursuing or executing justice. God expects that those who've received his grace, those who've received his mercy, become extenders of his grace and mercy. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's start from the beginning and ask, where does justice come from? Psalm eighty-nine, thirteen. 13. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. In verse 13, the psalmist highlights God's omnipotence, his unmitigated power, that his strength is mighty. And on his own, that should give us pause, right? Because unmitigated power leads to injustice. Wasn't it Lord Acton who rightly said, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. However, God's power is grounded upon the foundation of his righteousness and justice. So here's what that means. His steadfast love and faithfulness always accompany his power. See, if he was powerful and not loving, we would be terrified of him. But he's all-powerful and all-loving. Do you see this full picture of God? He's absolutely powerful, yet at the same time, he's absolutely righteous. He's just. He's loving. He's faithful. Let me give you a taste of what the Bible says about the just character of God. There are pages and pages of biblical text that declare God's heart for justice. I'm just going to rattle off a few. Isaiah 61, 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them, those robbers and wrongdoers, their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Isaiah thirty eighteen. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy for you. Why? For the Lord is a God of what? Justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Job 34, 12. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. He won't do it. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect. And all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. I could keep on going. We could fill the rest of our time with scriptures that declare God's justice. That he is a just God. This is a God unlike any other gods in antiquity. What the biblical writers are doing is they're, they're giving us a revolutionary picture and declaration of the character of God. If you study all the gods of antiquity, they were capricious. That's just a fancy word that means when someone is given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. And that's bad when humans are capricious, but if gods are capricious and they have all these powers, it gets really devastating for humans. You don't want a powerful being to have uncontrollable mood swings, right? You don't want a powerful being who deals unjustly. There's a historian named Tom Holland. He's a expert in Greco-Roman culture. He speaks to this point. He writes, how were mortals to avoid offending these capricious and ever-status-conscious deities. It was Theognis who asked, are there no guidelines set by heaven for mortal men, no path to follow that will please the gods? This question, which the sick, the bereaved, or the oppressed could hardly help but ask, had no ready answer. The gods, as inscrutable and whimsical as they were, rarely deigned to explain themselves. Here's what he's saying. We take it for granted that the God of the Bible is declared over and over as a just God. But the gods of the pantheons were just like humans, just with immortality and special powers. They were conniving, they were vengeful, they were promiscuous, they were unrighteous and unjust. And they set no guidelines for how man would ever please them. And they punished humanity for not guessing correctly. Think about how uncruel it is to go, you you need to please me, but I'm going to give you no indication, no clear path for how to do that. And when you don't please me, as you inevitably won't, I'm going to punish you for it. They were... The oppressed would ask for justice, but no answer would come. And it's into this milieu, it's into this culture, the psalmist writes, that when we approach the one true God, we're approaching one who is supremely powerful, but who is at the same time righteous, just, loving, and faithful. Here's another one we heard earlier from Psalm 146. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Pay attention to verse seven. Who executes justice for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry? The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Do you see what he's saying? God extends justice to the oppressed, God feeds the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He gives sight to the blind. He comforts the weary. He watches over the traveler, upholds the widow, and he defends the orphan. This passage, like all the others we read, shows God's concern for the oppressed, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. Here's another one, Psalm 68, 4-5. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Now think about before a speaker comes up, usually what happens if it's an important speaker, someone comes up to introduce him, right? We saw this at the inauguration a few weeks ago. They tell a little bit about the person before they come up and they tell you about their accomplishments. They tell you what kind of person they are. Here, The psalmist is introducing us to God, and how does he introduce him? Father of the fatherless, protector of widows. Of all things that the psalmist could say to introduce us to God, of all the things the psalmist could say to stir our hearts affection and worship, he picks these. Why? Because it is a remarkable and praiseworthy thing that the infinite God, the God of the universe, would be concerned with the marginalized and the vulnerable. And the psalmist is saying this is one of the main things he does in the world. He sees the vulnerable. He sees the oppressed. And he takes up their cause. That he would even notice it is astounding. But the fact that he's moved to action is spectacular and praiseworthy. This is where the conversation about justice has to begin. It has to begin with God. Did you know that the only reason you and I have an impulse to be concerned with justice, the only reason that we say things aren't fair, the only reason that we care at all about justice is because God is fiercely concerned with matters of justice. It is part of his character and nature. Justice is not something outside of God that he just so happens to be concerned with. No, justice is wrapped up in his very nature. He is good and he does what is good, and therefore he is the standard and the definition of justice. Now, don't miss this. We studied this in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because we're made in his image, he has infused that desire for justice into each one of us. He has endowed us with a capacity and a desire for justice. This impulse that you and I have for justice comes from God because you and I are made in his image. And it is so embedded into the Western mindset, not because justice and being just has evolved from the brutish ways of antiquity. No, our society is, it did not come to understand justice in its own wokeness. Our society cares about justice because God has revealed his just character to the world through scripture it's because God has given one each one of us has endowed each one of us with this impulse for justice that can't be ignored and it's because God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he introduced his kingdom ethics into the world and it's because in the in the wake of his death and resurrection a tiny band of nobodies started a worldwide movement that changed the way the entire world thinks about humanity. Earlier, I quoted from historian Tom Holland. He's a British historian. He's not a Christian. He's got no skin in the game, except that he cares to think critically about history. He wrote a recent book called Dominion. It's like this thick. And he traces how Christianity changed the world. He goes through every single era and looks at the norms and values of that society, okay? And what he's basically saying is is that Christianity so changed the world, that almost all of our norms and values that we take for granted today actually come from Christianity. See, he himself is a secular humanist, and here's what that means. He's not a Christian. All he basically believes is that humans deserve to be treated with equity and civility and that we should try to take care of the powerless and the marginalized and that we don't need religion to do it. But as he has studied history his whole life, he realized that the notions of human rights and treating people with justice did not come from Greco-Roman culture. It did not come from Greco-Roman virtues. It did not come from our own human nature or even from secular humanism. That everyone's impulse for justice comes from Christianity. Here's what he writes. Humanism Derives ultimately from the claims made in the Bible. That humans are made in God's image. That his son died equally for everyone. That there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That humans have rights. That they're born equal. That we're owed sustenance and shelter and refuge from persecution. These were never self-evident truths. Here's what he's saying. He's simply looking at history, looking at the data, and he's being honest that these values that we all share of human dignity and justice, they don't come from anywhere else except Christianity. What he's saying is if we're intellectually honest, everyone out there calling for justice, calling for virtue, has Christianity to think for those virtues and values. You know what Darwin thought about human rights? You know what he thought about feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, caring for persons with disabilities? Here's what he said. He's got a whole, uh, he's got a whole uh, chapter about um, all that work happening among the poor and the marginal, marginalized. Here's what he said. No one who's attended the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if we're going to evolve and get better, we can't take care of the weak and the marginalized. We have to leave them behind. All you have to do is look at breeding animals and you realize you throw out the weak ones. You throw out the ones who can't make it so that the strong survive. You know who Darwin influenced? Frederick Nietzsche who wrote about social evolution of man he called his new humanity his hope for humanity was called the ubermensch which roughly translates to the superman this was a humanity that would leave behind the christian ideas of caring for the poor and marginalized he thought human rights were laughable he saw them as weak and injurious to the human race you know who influenced you know who nietzsche influenced a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. And we all know how that story goes. Ideas have consequences. What's my point? Friends, without God, there is no standard of justice, only personal or societal preferences, which are what? Just as varied and whimsical as the gods of the pantheon. And without God, things spiral into destruction and chaos. Justice comes from God and if we as his church want to pursue meaningful and lasting justice we must get our definition and our motivation for justice from God himself. Where does justice come from? It comes from God. Now let's ask what is justice? So let's look at the words that the Bible uses to talk about justice. The first is the word that we translate justice. It comes from the Hebrew word mishpat. All right, you can impress your friends tomorrow. You know a Hebrew word. Mishpat means justice. This word occurs in its various forms over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it it basically means to treat people equitably and fairly both legally and socially. So you'll see it's used in matters of law. In this this usage, a person um, should be acquitted or punished based on the merits of the case, regardless of their race or social status. What it means is if someone is accused of a crime, they shouldn't get off because they're wealthy. They shouldn't get off because they know the judge. It means the matters of the case should be looked at. They should be treated fairly. And then based on the evidence, there should be a decision, acquittal or punishment, right? This means that anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same punishment. We call this retributive justice, so that a person gets what they deserve, either acquittal or punishment, in the legal or criminal sense. So, for example, you'll see this in Leviticus 24. He's, uh, the Lord says, you shall have the same rule, the same mishpot for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. You see that? He's saying you can't favor your own countrymen over the traveler. You've got to have the same rules, the same mishpot for the foreigner and the citizen. But as you go dig deeper into this word, you'll find out that it's more than just equity in matters of law, but it also means giving people their rights, their protection and care. This is, you could call this restorative justice. So we've got retributive justice, but you also have restorative justice. So seeking out vulnerable people, who are, being, who are suffering injustice and helping them. Seeing someone who's hungry and giving them the gift of a meal. It means taking steps to advance uh, and advocate the vulnerable and helping change societal structures to prevent injustice. We see this kind of usage in Isaiah 117. The Lord is saying that we should learn to do good. Seek justice, that's that word mishpat. Correct oppression and bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Pastor Tim Keller has written an excellent book called Generous Justice. It's my reading rainbow moment of the sermon. It's, if you want to dig deeper into what does the Bible have to say about justice, I can think of no better book than this. It's a great book. And he, helps, he helpfully combines um, this understanding of mishpat and its legal and social aspects uh, from the Bible. Listen to what he says. Mishpat then is giving people what they're due Whether punishment or protection or care. The mishpat or justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats those with no social power. Any neglect shown to the needs of the vulnerable is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but it's a violation of justice. So what we see is that biblical justice is both retributive and restorative, and it means that people are given what they're due, whether that's punishment, protection, or care. Now, there's a second word often used in conjunction with this Hebrew word mishpat, justice, and it's the word righteousness. They're very closely related words, and it's the Hebrew word sadakah, all right? Now you know two Hebrew words, sadakah. Now, it's often translated in the Bible as being righteous or being just, and it refers to a life, listen to this, of right relationships, okay? Okay? Right relationship. So more than doing good or being good, Sadakah is concerned with relationships. It's an ethical standard that that involves being in right relationship with other people. So it's about treating people with the dignity and the value and worth that they deserve simply because they are made in the image of God. Again, Pastor Tim uh, Keller is helpful. When most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they think of it in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, sadakah refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family, society with fairness, generosity, and equity. Sadakah is behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice Unnecessary because why everybody would be living in right relationships to everyone else. Therefore, though is primarily about being in a right relationship with God, this is a righteous life that results. uh, The righteous life that results is profoundly social. So he's saying we need to be in right relationship with God, but when we are, as he's as we're being changed and transformed, that changes how we relate to others. So another way to think about it is that mishpat is this idea of doing acts of justice, especially where there's been um, injustice. It's seeing a wrong and being motivated to do something about it. And sadakah is this idea of creating a lifestyle of day-to-day living where you treat people with fairness, generosity, and equity. Old Testament scholar Alec Mateer defines the righteous as those who are right with God and therefore, committed to putting right all other relationships in life. To be truly righteous, according to the Bible, is to be in right relationship with God and have right relationships with others. Here's another Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walkie. He wrote a, a really thick commentary on the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the righteous life. And at the end of his study, years of studying it, he looked at every single usage of the righteous person and, and wanted, to go, wanted to have a, a, a helpful, compact way to think about, according to the book of Proverbs, who is the righteous person? Here's what he said. The righteous are those willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, And the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. You see that? The righteous person lives in a selfless kind of way to see those around them thrive. But the wicked lives in such a selfish way and is willing to take from the community in order to elevate themselves. The righteous person who is rightly related to God, who derives his identity, his security from God, will inevitably and increasingly grow to rightly relate to others. Here's a passage in Ezekiel where the two terms are brought together, sadakah and righteousness. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take profit, but withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man. If he walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. I know this is a lot of information, but do you see it? righteousness and justice, being just and doing justice, go hand in hand. In fact, it was Jesus who criticized the Pharisees for neglecting matters of justice, right? These would have been the people that if people in their day said, who are the most righteous? They would have said, oh, the Pharisees. They are following the law perfectly. Here's what Jesus said to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected what? The weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What is Jesus saying? You guys look so righteous on the outside. You take tithing to this other level. You even tithe from your spice cabinet. That's how righteous they were on the outside. But what did they do? They neglected people. Which ultimately nullified their righteousness. What is justice according to the Bible? It's doing justice. It's ensuring that people are given what they deserve. Whether punishment, protection, or care. This is a responsive kind of justice. This is where we see a need and we respond. But biblical justice is also about being just, being proactively working for justice. Living in day-to-day relational generosity where you treat people with fairness and equity and compassion. So we've seen where justice comes from. And I hope we have an idea now of what biblical justice is. Now let's end with what is my responsibility. What is our responsibility? Micah eight. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Another way to think about this verse is it's the Christian life reduced down to its irreducible minimums, meaning you can't reduce it any further and still call it Christian. So the first thing he says is walk humbly with God. Now it comes at the end of the sentence, but that's because Hebrews often put the the, the most important thing at the end. It was like a, uh, if you hear anything, hear this most important thing. It's a Hebrew idiom. And so what he's saying is the most important thing is walk humbly with your God. Get right with God by giving up your prideful ways of self-preservation and self-exaltation and self-salvation. In humility, recognize your utter need for forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. With humility, Recognize your utter need for forgiveness. Live in dependence on God. And and, and Micah is saying this has to happen first. You can't do the other things, justice and loving kindness. You can't earn favor with God. It doesn't work that way. That's earning salvation. And the Bible is emphatically clear. Salvation is a gift from God, not a reward of good works. We come humbly to God with nothing in our hands and we beg and plead and ask him for forgiveness for all the ways that we've sinned against him for all the ways that we've sinned against others for all the ways that we have perpetrated injustice in the world and when we come humbly to God you know what he does he lavishes his forgiveness on us he forgives us simply because he is a loving and forgiving God God. And he's provided salvation for us through the life and death of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came to earth, he lived a life of perfect righteousness and justice. So that in this great gospel exchange, he would take our life of unrighteousness. He would take our acts of injustice. He would take those on himself. And what would he give us? He would give us his perfect life of righteousness and justice. That's what Peter means when he says in 1 Peter three eighteen, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Look, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's how we become a Christian. That's how we walk humbly with God. Then as one who's been forgiven, and already been shown mercy, we do this second part of Micah 6, 8, and that's to do justice and love kindness. That's doing justice and being just. This is responding to matters of injustice and helping do everything we can to create a society where people treat each other with fairness, equity, and compassion. Doesn't that sound, doesn't Micah 6, 8 sound a whole lot like Jesus when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he said? They came to him and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And here's Jesus' beautiful response. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then he gives them a bonus. He says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You see, Micah and Jesus are saying the same thing. Love God, love others. This is what the right life looks like. Your neighbor is created in the image of God, just like you. This is the basis for dignity, worth, and value. So much of the time in our, in our cultural moment, dignity and worth is based on what you can produce what you contribute to society. And if so someone is not contributing to society, they're not as valuable as somebody else. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Every single human, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of age, regardless of sex, gender, status, abilities, or contribution. Every single human is inherently valuable. They're worthy of your dignity. They're worthy of your love. And they are entitled by God to be treated fairly. This is the foundation for justice. This is why we can say that all humans are created equal before God. Friends, doing justice, pursuing justice is not a suggestion. It's a responsibility. It's a requirement. It's a command. Doing justice and being just are not extras. It's not like if you get around to it, you should try this out. It is not supplemental to the Christian life. It is essential. You can't reduce the Christian life smaller than that. Love God and love God others. That is the heart and essence of the Christian life. Kids, by the way, you guys have been awesome. All right, we owe them a round of applause. We are working hard in the next few weeks to get children's ministry um, back up and running, but I want to address you for a moment. As you are learning about God, as you are embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's important that you strive to love God and love others too. See, everything I'm saying is for all the adults in the room, but it's also for you too, that you grow up loving God and having this deep impulse to love others as well. Get it deep into your heart right now. Don't wait till you're old and curmudgeon like me. You gotta start learning to love people right now. God cares about how we treat others. And the Bible says that we can't claim to love God with all of our heart while at the same time being mean and rude to our parents, our siblings, and friends. So this is for everybody in the room. Love God and love others. So Seven Mile, how do we do this? First, as a church organization, people ask all the time, how is our church doing this work? Well, first and foremost, our job as a church is to make disciples and equip the saints for the work of ministry. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 gives us our mission. Jesus said to the church, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That's our mission statement. To go and make disciples. And then it's the work of the church leadership to do what Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says. He gave, to the, uh, and he gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So here's what that means. The church as an organization is tasked with equipping all of its members... The whole body of Christ so that every area of your life and my life is influenced and shaped by the gospel. So everything that we're talking about today should be starting to infuse in us so that we go out and do this work. We want every area of your life to be influenced and shaped by the gospel. But what that doesn't mean is that the church as an organization is supposed to create a litany of nonprofits to do this work. So here's what happens. As you grow and your understanding of God's concern for the poor, you right here in these seats, that you will be motivated, compelled to go and serve at homeless shelters and feed the hungry. Now from time to time, our church will partner with local organizations in our community to help provide opportunities for our people to give and to serve. But it doesn't mean that the church, Seven Mile Road, is going to create one nonprofit after another in order to do this work. Because the ministry of the church is not done by the church organization, but by the people of the church. Church, look at me. You are the church. Our 501c3 status is not the church. You are the church. We are the church we will not create a slew of nonprofits like homeless shelters and food pantries and social services and all that you know why because our job as the church is to equip all of us so that we take our giftedness so that you take your industry that you take your abilities that you take your passions and you go out and change the world the reality is no single organization can do all Things well. It is a recipe for disaster. The church as an organizing structure is to do its job to equip and call people to action. And then it's our job as the people to go out and do justice in the world. So as God gives you opportunity, As God gives you passion, we're going to find there's all kinds of areas that we can get involved in. You can't even be involved in all of them. There's no possible way. You don't have enough time and resources to do that. But as God gives you passion, as God gives you a leaning, as God has gifted you in your own unique ways, we go out into the world to pursue matters of justice. Now, second, that's what it looks like for the church. Second, what does it look like personally and individually now, we're going to get into this in more detail over the next few weeks as we look at particular areas of injustice. But for right now, here's some general principles that you can store back in your mind. Number one, be fair, honest, and compassionate in the everyday interactions with people. Look at me. You don't need to join a, a movement. You don't need a, a sign to protest to do this. You can just do this today today. With everyone you come into contact with, strive to be fair, honest, and compassionate. Often, especially in a social media kind of world, we want to be a part of big movements and revolutions. And don't hear me. I think those are very important. But don't discount the impact of everyday kindness. It goes a long way as you interact with people. Be just, even at cost to yourself. This is proactive justice. You really can change the world one person and one interaction at a time. Number two, be generous with your time and resources. Be generous with your time and resources. Here's what that means. You've gotta start budgeting your time and resources so that you have margin to give them away. If your calendar is so packed, jam-packed, that you can't say yes to needs, then you'll never be able to do anything. Make sure your calendar has space to say yes to needs that arise. If your personal finances are so tight that you couldn't spare a dollar to somebody, you'll never be able to respond to a need. Make sure you have money set aside, ready to be given away, just sitting there so that when needs arise, you can say yes I've already made a plan for that. I've made a plan to be generous. Number three, find specific areas of injustice where you can be involved. Friends, there are no shortage of wonderful organizations in our communities. Right now, that are doing good work to alleviate injustice. And I'll be honest with you, some of them are Christian and some are not. Some might perfectly align with your beliefs and others not so much. But regardless, pray and ask where the Lord could be leading you and get involved. Be a part of something bigger than yourself. Let me free you up. You don't have to be a part of every single cause. No one has time to be involved in every single thing. But pray and ask, Lord, where might you be leading me? And go and serve. Go be the church in the community. Let's be proactively involved in seeing injustices in our world righted. This is what it means as a church to pray and ask that God's kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. I know that was a lot. But friends, justice comes from God. You and I are made in God's image Everybody deserves to be treated with dignity, worth, and value. God is himself justice, and he has infused in you a desire for justice. It comes from God. Justice means giving people what they're due. If they need protection, if they need care, if they need a meal, justice means seeing those needs met. It means living with day-to-day generosity, generosity, As we treat people with fairness and equity. And justice is required for you and me. It's essential. It's part of what it means to live out the gospel. Because God expects those who bear his name to show his same concern for justice. Let's pray.